What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to, Mo, uh, to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For God, for who can resist the will, uh, excuse me, who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? What have you, why have you made me this like this? Has a potter no right over the, the clay? To make out the same lump, out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he has prepared before uh, for his glory. This is the word of the Lord. The summit of Mount Everest sits at a height of about 29,000 feet. I don't know if that's actually Mount Everest, but it'll help you kind of imagine. <clears throat> it's considered the highest point on earth, Mount Everest is. And the first time that we have record of anyone actually making it all the way to the top was in 1953. The two men that did it had to use specially designed oxygen masks, oxygen masks in order to breathe at that high of an altitude to overcome the effects of the thin air that, that would exist at such an extremely high altitude. The air is thin when you get towards the top of Mount Everest. They call it rarefied air. Low amounts of oxygen, so it's hard to breathe. And apparently at about 26,000 feet, so about 3,000 feet before you actually get to the summit, there's a point of no return called the death zone. Once you get to that altitude, 26,000 feet, your body starts to shut down. You can't stay there for very long, only a couple days, even if you have extra oxygen. If you don't have oxygen, you can only survive there a couple of hours. So they say that it's like running a marathon while breathing through a straw. This is what the experience is like of climbing that death zone. Pounding headaches because your body begins to rapidly dehydrate as you're panting. You're very dizzy, lightheaded. The blood vessels in your eyes can even burst. And that's to say nothing of the bone-chilling cold, just absolutely unable to get warm in any way the cells in your body begin to break down more quickly than they can recover. You feel like you're dying because you actually are. And for some people who are able to reach that altitude, they suffer from what's called isolated high-altitude psychosis, or mountain madness. You can suddenly lose touch with reality at that altitude. So some people believe that they're being chased. Others start talking to imaginary people, or they start, 
start talking without any making, making any sense. And so for the small price of $40,000 and years of training, you too can summit <laughs> the highest point on earth. In the 1920s, a man named George Mallory tried multiple times to summit Mount Everest. The second time up, seven people in his party died. But he planned on going back up for a third time. He never did make it. But in his preparation for that, someone asked him, why do you want to reach the summit of Mount Everest so badly? His response, because it's there. Everest is the highest mountain in the world, and no man has reached its summit. Its existence is a challenge. The answer is instinctive, a part, I suppose, of man's desire to conquer the universe. He's right about that, isn't he? God has designed us in his image and told us to take dominion over his earth and to subdue it. And so that desire to subdue creation has rattled around in the heart of humanity since the beginning. And there's something unique about high mountaintops that make us feel like we're closer to the creator. Looking down over creation can give us a sense of authority over that creation. Mountaintops have always been thought of as the place where we can become closest to God. Where if there's this, this chasm between nature and supernature, perhaps mountaintops are the, the thin membrane between the two of them. Where heaven might meet earth, as it were. Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. They wanted knowledge of good and evil which is to say they wanted to determine for themselves what was considered good and what was considered evil for themselves. And we have all followed suit. Just think of the Tower of Babel or the pyramids or any other temple across human history. We all try to climb our way into heaven by our own desire and effort, in part, to try and prove that we have finally become God, that we have conquered the universe we have authority over it. Our passage today in Romans 9 leads us into rarefied air. This is a high point of scripture. It's about as close as we get in divine revelation between the dividing line between the hidden will of God and the revealed will. In other words, friends, we are in the death zone this morning. But let me be very clear we are not going to summit this mountain. No matter how much extra oxygen you bring, no matter how much extra training you do, we'll never be able to make it to the top of the mountain we're trying to climb this morning. No amount of wisdom, no amount of technology or desire or effort will allow us to summit the mind of God. There is an important distinction between the creator, which is to say God, and his creation, which is you and I, and Mount Everest. We will never sit in judgment over God. And we will never rightly accuse him that we know better than he does. That we have determined what good and evil are. And he's wrong. Or he's unjust. Or he's unfair. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. There is mystery here. So we must approach this divine revelation with trepidation. So put on your oxygen masks 
And don't let mountain madness settle into your heart or mind because the air is thin here, my friends. Let's pray before we start. Father, we need your help this morning as we acknowledge the fact that you have spoken to us. We know that you are the potter and we are the clay. We ask that you would help us to submit to your word, help us to find joy in your sovereignty. Father, your word was written to us for our joy and that we might know that we have salvation. So we pray that that would be true of us this morning by your spirit. Amen. Our big idea this morning let God be God. Let God be God. And I want to do something that's a little bit out of the ordinary this morning. This is such a highly contested passage. And so in order to not appear to be forcing my own structure upon this, the text, I'm going to try to put the whole body of the passage on the screen in order to show, to the best of my ability, Paul's argument. There are two questions in the passage, and that's going to be our structure for the sermon. There's two questions that are asked. The first, is there injustice on God's part? We see that in verse 14. And then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? In verse 19. So those two questions will be the sort of the headers. And just to be clear, it's fine to have questions about these things. There's mystery here. There's nothing wrong with asking questions about this. But the flavor of these questions, as Paul presents them in Romans 9, have a flavor of prideful accusation. So that's what I'm going to call them. There are two accusations in this passage. First, accusation number one, God is unrighteous. We'll tackle that in verses 14 to 18. And then accusation number two, God is unfair. We'll see that in 19 to 23. So we're going to try to track along, try to find out why those two questions, those accusations might arise in the audience of uh, who Paul is writing to, and then we'll try to track with his responses, and then we'll try to think about what it means for us. Accusation number one, God is unrighteous. Verses 14 to 18, Paul says in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Why would Paul think that that question would come up in the mind of his readers or his audience? Well, it, it naturally actually arises from the passage that we just covered last Sunday, Romans 9, verses 6 to 13, and I'm going to need to read that just back into our hearing so we have some more context here, Romans 9, 6 to 13. But it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is the context of the question that arises in our mind. As we said last Sunday, God is able freely to decide whom he wants to bless. This is God's prerogative. He freely elects based on his own purposes, which we saw laid in the Old Testament narratives. We see it in 
Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 8. Just remind you what we find there. God says to Israel, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And here in Romans 9, it wasn't, this is what Paul's saying, it wasn't because Jacob was a great dude that God loved him. He was kind of a turkey, actually. He swindled his brother out of his inheritance. But this passage says that it was before either Jacob or Esau had been born or had done anything good or bad that God decreed his electing love for Jacob and withheld it from Esau. Okay, so if you've understood what Paul is illustrating from the Old Testament, you might then be tempted to think, well, that sounds unjust. If God decides, apart from anything in the human being, whom he will choose and whom he will reject, how can he be righteous? That sounds arbitrary. It sounds like it's based on random choice or God's own personal whim rather than any reason or system. That's not how God ought to judge. To our thinking, God needs to observe the evidences of who deserves love or who deserves hate before he is able to declare his judgment. Otherwise, he would be unjust. Otherwise, he would be unrighteous. So do you understand why the question is being asked? It's important. Notice Paul's answer to the question. Paul doesn't back off one inch. He could have resolved the tension that we find there in our minds by very quickly responding, well, no, God's not unjust because his election is based on his divine foreknowledge of how someone will live in the future. Notice that Paul does not do that. He actually goes the other direction. He doubles down on the side of God's freedom and God's sovereignty. Does that make God unjust? By no means. Absolutely not. May it never be. This is very strong language from Paul, the very strong response to that question. It's because there's very clear and consistent testimony across Scripture of God's justice, of God's faithfulness, of his righteousness. Consider just two. Deuteronomy 32, 4 says, The rock, that's God, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness without iniquity, just and upright is he. Psalm eleven seven, For the Lord is righteous. And he does righteous deeds. There's plenty more where that comes from. Two quick examples, not to mention even Romans 3. Earlier in this book where it was explained that God has shown himself to be just in and through the cross of Christ. Nothing God does is unjust. That must be in your mind. That must be in your heart. Paul states his response up front. No, God is not unjust. He is not unrighteous. And then he supports that by quoting from Scripture. There are principles found in the Old Testament narratives that illustrate, that give support to what Paul has said about God's freedom to bestow love and mercy as he sees fit. He goes back to the account of Israel and their exodus from Egypt. So example one, the first example that we see is written for us in the next verse, verse 15. God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. 
This is a reference to the Exodus narrative, as we know, from chapters 33 and 34 of Exodus. There in the book of Exodus, Israel has just rebelled uh, against God. They've made a false god to worship, and God would have been just to destroy them at that, at that point. So Moses intercedes for them, and he says, well, hold on, you can destroy me, don't destroy them. God relents, says his presence will remain with Israel. And then Moses then asks to see God's glory. He wants God to, quote, show him his ways. And so God responds. He says, I will, I'll tell Moses, I'll make my goodness pass before you and proclaim my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. In other words, God is free as the source and fountain of all being as Yahweh to bestow mercy freely as he sees fit. He will not be domesticated. Then in Exodus 34, 1 through 9, I'm going to read this whole passage into our hearing. Moses has just broken the first ten commandments. He came down, saw the whole situation, throws them down, breaks them. He needs another copy. So he goes back to get another set. Now we're in Exodus 34, verses 1 through 9. The Lord says to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like that first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. Note, meeting God on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, let no one be seen through all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cuts two stones like the first, He rose early in the morning, went up to Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Moses' response, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. A foundational moment in the history of Israel and Christianity, where we get a very clear, explicit explanation from God himself about who he is. And Paul points back to that foundational moment in history to establish the freedom of God to be merciful and compassionate towards those whom he will, Moses wants to see God's glory. That was, his resp- that was his request of God. And God responds by declaring his being and his character, which is to say his glory. That is his glory. And his glory is made known to us in the attributes that he describes. Mercy, grace, patience, love, faithfulness, forgiveness, justice. He will by no means clear the guilty. So Paul shows what that quote from Exodus means. So then, the decisive factor, bless you, so then the decisive factor is not human willing or human working, but the merciful God 
So he's just, he's grounded God's freedom to freely extend his mercy as he sees fit. Paul has done this in scripture and in God's own declared being and character. Paul goes further by giving a second example. We see this in verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So at this point, this actually brings us earlier on in the book of Exodus. The people of Israel have been kept under harsh conditions as slaves in Egypt. They are not free to worship the one true and living God. And so they cry out for deliverance from this bondage. They want deliverance from this slavery. God hears them. God raises up a man called Moses to lead them out. And so Moses goes to the Pharaoh, who is the king of Egypt, and Moses says, let my people go. But Pharaoh doesn't want to let them go, does he? What does Pharaoh respond? No. Well, why not? Why wouldn't Pharaoh let Israel go? What's the big deal? What, what's, what's the matter? Well, I mean, the, the quick answer would probably be that he enjoys the Israelites' cheap slave labor. He, he benefits from them being around. But Exodus gives us a rare glimpse to what's going on behind the veil, about what's going on in Pharaoh's heart, which we normally can't see. Here is the very first reference to Pharaoh's hard heart. It's in Exodus 4, verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. We can see this in other verses that have uh, referenced that there on the screen, 9, 10, 11, 14, say that same thing, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. We read elsewhere in Exodus chapter 8, Chapter 9, that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So chapter 8, 15, for example. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he had hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. And there are yet other passages that simply say that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. So the one who is doing the hardening is intentionally left unclear in the text. Exodus seven thirteen, for example, Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. So that's Exodus 7, 13. Okay, now forgive me. Hold on for just a moment. We do need to talk about a minor bit of grammar to understand what we're finding here. We can speak of Pharaoh's hardened heart in two ways, active and passive. God hardens Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. These two things are both there. But we also find passive language. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. The being, the cause of the hardening, is not explicit in the text. It's also described in that passive voice. His heart was hardened. So it's, it's intentionally unclear about who performed the hardening. Okay, I tuck that away. No matter what, we must affirm that all these ways of describing the hardening of Pharaoh's heart are true. We find them in scripture, we say, that's right, that's right. But in Romans, back to Romans, that's where our passage is, how is Paul using this? Paul intentionally puts the emphasis on God's divine freedom, just like in Exodus, 
before Pharaoh hardened his own heart, God predicts that he himself will harden Pharaoh's heart. There is a concurrence happening here. Two things happening. God's orchestration of history to display his glory in and through the Pharaoh of Egypt and Pharaoh's willful action to preserve his own best interests. We don't want to deny either of those truths. We need to see that and say yes and amen. We recall that after those 10 plagues, Pharaoh let Israel go. Pharaoh changes his mind, chases after them with his army, but they get caught up in the Red Sea and they become destroyed. And then Israel sings a song of celebration in Exodus chapter 15, that song of Moses, where he says things like, the Lord has thrown the horse and rider into the sea, and he says, quote, he has triumphed gloriously over them. He is my strength, my song, and he has become my salvation. The Lord is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. So this is how the Lord showed his power in and through Pharaoh, through bringing Israel salvation and bringing Egypt judgment. So Paul concludes, what we learn from that piece of Israel's history is that God not only has mercy according to his free will, but he also hardens whomever he wills. God has absolute freedom in his dispensation of grace. So whether in the showing of mercy or in the giving of judgment, God is free and sovereign. Let me just recap what we've walked through here. Is God unrighteous for not saving everyone in the ethnic line of Israel? Absolutely not. He gives two illustrations to support God's freedom from the exit of narrative. First, he told Moses that he is free and under no obligation to give mercy or compassion to anyone. Second, he told Pharaoh that he raised him into his position of authority and hardened his heart to display his authority over him and to manifest his name, which is his glory, which includes his justice. You tracking? Okay, that brings us to the next, the next potential accusation against God. Accusation number two, God's not fair. Verse 19 says, okay, based on what just happened, you'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Paul is anticipating what someone might think if they're following what he just said carefully. So why would Paul think that that question would come up in the mind of the audience? Well, it naturally arises what he just, from what he just said. He just, a verse, uh, in, in verse 18, he just asserted that God has the freedom in order to fulfill his own eternal purposes to sovereignly harden the human heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart in order to provide an opportunity to display both his mercy and his wrath. And he does this without any reference to human desires or human efforts. That's verse 16. No, I don't like that. That can't be, comes the accusation. If a, per- if a person's hardness of heart is the work of a sovereign God, well, then it would be unfair for God to hold him accountable for his resistance to God's commands. So if you can't resist God's will, then we shouldn't be held accountable for our rebellion. Ultimately, then, our, our rebellion would be God's fault. If we want to be logical about it, right? Do you get the question? Paul's response, 
Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? An interjection here. Whoa! Hey, man, really? Indeed? This is what you want to say? Who are you to be talking back to God? And maybe you didn't notice this as we read through those first two illustrations from the passage just before this, but Paul just quoted God directly. Both those illustrations he used from Exodus, that's God himself speaking. God himself says he has mercy and hardens according to his own will. So when Paul asks his questions here, he's like, do you, do you really want to contradict God himself? Do you want to speak against what God has clearly said about himself? This is important. I tremble to teach this because this passage is so weighty and it comes so close to the edge of our human ability to reason. But I don't think the Holy Spirit stuttered here. Any attempt to try to stand over God's word to make it say what we wanted to say to find, to find it more tasteful or comfortable is to turn things upside down. Let me just caution. I gladly acknowledge that there are other genuine, earnest Christians who read this passage differently. No matter what conclusions you come to, you must never try to stand over God's, uh, over authority, over God and his word. We don't stand over God's word in judgment. As soon as you do that once, you've set a pattern up for yourself. If you come upon other tests that you find distasteful about any number of things, gender roles or human sexuality or divorce or the sanctity of human life or the reality of hell, like, eh. Well, I mean, there's, there's multiple interpretations here, or that's just your way of reading it. You can get to the point where the Bible means nothing anymore, and you're so open-minded that your brain falls out. <laughs> Don't let that happen. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't wrestle with this. You should wrestle with this difficult text and others like it, but you've got to recognize that you're always going to lose that fight. That's the starting point. We're not reading a Wikipedia entry here. This is God's word. Though there are some ways, as I've said, some Christians have read this that will, that will take off the sharp edges, and that's okay. You should know what you believe. You should know why you believe it. You should be able to explain why you believe it. But don't let the final judge of what's right, what's appropriate for God, be you. That's a common slippery slope that ends in apostasy. Don't even start. The prophet Isaiah warned Israel over and over again against engaging in idolatry, as we read about this summer. Idolatry making their own gods, it suited their own desires. They could find a God who would tell them what they wanted to hear. We don't get to tell the creator what's acceptable for him. You might have heard someone say, well, my God would never do that. And, and you might respond, well, that's probably because your God is you, just a little bit taller. <laughs> you shouldn't be surprised by that. Our understanding of God must be shaped by who he tells us he is, not who we feel like we want him to be. That is to turn things upside down. In verses 20 through 21, Paul emphasizes the important distinction between God and man, between creator and creation, and he uses an illustration of a pot and a potter. This is a clear allusion to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 16. 
You turn things upside down. Literally what he says. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, he didn't make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? In our call to worship text that we read earlier, Isaiah chapter 45, verse 9. Woe to him who strives with him and who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. This, of course, was in the context of God raising up a pagan king named Cyrus in order to redeem Israel from their exile. And you might think, well, that seems like a strange way for God to deal in human history. The prophet Isaiah's response is, that's God's prerogative. Let's let God be God. Let's focus, though, for a moment on that, that, that phrase, the same lump, that we find in verse 22, or I'm sorry, 21. The potter spoken of here has one lump of clay. And he makes two kinds of vessels from that one source of clay. Those for honorable use, like the fancy china that you might use on holidays, or those for dishonorable use, like a chamber pot. He's not comparing humans to inanimate objects, but he's illustrating the authority of God over his creation. But let's just think about that one lump. There's the same lump. Just as with the twins, Jacob and Esau, they came from one source under the same conditions. This is important to keep in mind about this lump. The one lump of clay, which represents humanity in this analogy, is a sinful humanity. Since the fall, humanity is not neutral. We are not righteous by default. That, so that same lump of clay that is spoken about there, that's the posterity of Adam. That's the children of Adam. We have all fallen into perdition. We have fallen into ruin by our sin. This is why nearly every Christian statement of faith that you'll find at any church is going to say that we are sinners by nature. We have all sinned against God. This is what Paul said in Romans 3. And the just penalty for that sin is death. This is what Paul said in chapter 6. So that means while God does harden whomever he freely chooses, human beings, because of sin, are responsible for their ultimate condemnation. Take a deep breath. This is about as close as we're going to get to the summit. It brings us to Paul's conclusion in this portion, 22 and 23. What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, which should immediately remind us of what he did with Pharaoh, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Now, I take that, that final phrase to be central to this entire passage, that God does all things for his glory that all of these things have been done in order to make known the riches of his glory for those vessels of mercy. But let's just return now to that momentary grammar lesson that we did earlier, the concept of active and passive language. Notice in this passage that the vessels of wrath are prepared, but it doesn't say who does the preparation. It's passive in that sense. Now look at the vessels of mercy. And notice, he has prepared them beforehand. There's an important distinction here. That's active language. 
it says that God prepared them beforehand. I just want to draw attention to this. There's, there's, a, there's a distinction here between these two. There are even different words in the original language. It's kind of hard for us to tell in our ESV. They both say prepared, but they're actually two different words in the original. He uses one word for the vessels of wrath being fitted for, which is what the King James says, or put together for destruction. And then Paul uses a different, unique word for the vessels of glory, where he says he prepared them in advance. So we might read through this passage very quickly and just sort of assume that God is acting the same way in both of these circumstances that he prepared vessels of wrath, he prepared the vessels of glory, and he's done both of them in the same way, that there's symmetry between the two of them, but they are not symmetrical. Paul purposefully describes them in different ways. Think back to Pharaoh. Remember, God prophesied that he would harden his heart, but Pharaoh wasn't passive in that, right? Pharaoh actively hardened his own heart. And in some places, we get that passive language where his heart was hardened, where it's intentionally unclear who did the hardening. Here's the point. God must actively work in us to create faith, but he doesn't need to actively work in us to create sin. God must actively work in us to create faith, but he doesn't need to actively work in us to create sin. That would appear to make God the author of evil, which he most certainly is not. How can those two things be true? How can God sovereignly ordain whatsoever comes to pass, and yet humans are responsible for their own sin and rebellion? We tend to think of the human will and God's divine will as being mutually exclusive. Okay, it's maybe 50% me, and it's 50% God, or if we're being generous, it's 99% God, 1% me. Michael Horton, a professor in California, was really helpful to me in thinking through this. He says this, quote, we shouldn't think in terms of a single pie that's divided between God and us, but of God's own way of being free as sovereign creator and the creaturely freedom that God has given to all of us as his image bearers. So percentages are not a helpful way to think about this. God is sovereign. We are responsible. How can all these things hold together? Well, my friends, this is where our journey up the mountain ends. God doesn't provide a defense of his character that he hopes that we'll find appealing. He speaks, we affirm. Wherever he closes his holy mouth, we must rest content because we don't judge God. In light of all this, it seems best to understand this as saying that God chose to have mercy on many and leave the rest to their own choice. And he does all this to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. So let's just come back down the mountain now. Does any of this, what we've just read or talked about, mean that we don't need to go share the gospel with people if God is ultimately sovereign over all things? No. We're going to get there very soon in chapter 10, where Paul himself in moments will tell us, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they call on him who they have not believed? And how can they call on him of when they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So nothing Paul said 
contradicts our responsibility to share a goodwill, honest proclamation offer of the gospel to anyone and to everyone. Why? Because we don't know who the elect are. The secrets of their hearts are not known to us. Remember, we didn't make it to the top of the mountain, guys. We didn't get up there to open the book of life to see whose name is written down in there. We didn't sign the guest book. That is God's knowledge. That is not our knowledge. Our responsibility is to share the gospel freely and genuinely with every person without discrimination. Now, you might say, well, if we don't know who's elect, well, how can we have any assurance of salvation? How would I know that I'm saved? Can we know that I'm saved? Our assurance of faith must first be based on God's unshakable promises. If we're thinking, trying to figure out if, if we're saved, you start there. Start with God, start with his word, start with his promises, start with his trustworthiness, his faithfulness. God promises that those who call upon his name will be saved. Done. Christ's objective righteousness is the basis of our assurance, first and foremost. But beyond that, we can examine our lives for fruit and evidence that we have truly been born again, that we have faith in Christ. And it's at this point that the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are indeed children of God. This is Romans chapter 8. Church membership, I might add, is a helpful assurance of faith because we live in community together with one another and we're able to testify into one another's lives about the, the good fruit that we see and help build up one another's assurance of salvation to help one another to look to Christ with true devotion and hope. God declares to us who he is, and he has told us that he is merciful and just. He is merciful to save some without any regard to their willing or their doing, and he is just in leaving others into the fall into which they have thrown themselves. Here's Paul's response in one sentence. No one receives injustice from the hand of God. That's not how it works. I want to end by just acknowledging the spiritual danger of being this high in a mountain. Anytime we examine doctrines like this, you, you, you definitely have questions, and as I've said, that's great, that's to be expected, but you must not have accusations, okay? You may be tempted to these same prideful accusations that we've just read here from God. He's unjust, he's unfair. Please recognize the deluding influence of Satan. John Bunyan was a preacher and author in the 1600s. And he wrote a book, we know Pilgrim's Progress, but he has another book called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And in this book, it's written sort of as his spiritual autobiography where he talks about a period of time in his life which lasted for about a year where he deeply questioned his own salvation. He described it as a season of spiritual warfare. He was tossed back and forth between taking joy in God on the one hand and not trusting God on the other. John read Romans 9.16, where it says, Salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So he began to question his salvation. How could he know whether God had mercy on him? Was there really nothing that he could do, even some small thing, anything in and of himself that he could do to gain salvation, to have some assurance? 
And the tempter prodded these thoughts along and would say things, whisper them into his heart and into his mind and say things like, you're right. You might as well stop even trying to pursue Christ. You'll never know if God saved you. Just give up. At the time, he didn't realize that this was a temptation of the devil at all. He thought he was just thinking reasonably. He was trying to be logical. Satan used his anxiety about his salvation against him. He would even read in Isaiah 57 where it says, there is no peace for the wicked. So he's like, I don't have peace. I must be wicked. But there were other passages. Other passages of Scripture that brought him back to reality out of that mountain madness. Romans 8.35 told him that nothing could separate him from the love of Christ. Jeremiah 3.4 taught him that even when Israel had done all the evil they could, nothing could separate them from He He invites them to call. Call on me for salvation. He was encouraged by 2 Corinthians 5.21, where it says, For our sake God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin. In him we might become the righteousness of God. And he had a breakthrough moment. Let me just read this brief passage. I remember that one day as I was traveling into the country and musing on the wickedness and blasphemy of my heart, considering the enmity that was in me to God, that scripture came into my mind that said, he has made peace by the blood of his cross, by which I was made to see both again and again that day that God and my soul were friends by his blood. Yea, I saw that the justice of God and my sinful soul could embrace and kiss each other through his blood. This was a good day to me. I hope I shall never forget it. John Bunyan was helped by the Holy Spirit and from counsel from friends and from his pastor to see that Scripture actually gave him reason to be joyful, reason to be confident about his salvation. Don't let Satan tempt you to despair of God's love, of God's mercy. Don't let Satan steal your joy of salvation. Don't let your despair of God's love drive a wedge between you and your Savior. If you have never trusted in Christ, and you hear him calling to you even now, call back. And don't harden your heart. Let's pray.